take your Bibles and find the book of Habakkuk. Okay, that's in the Old Testament. It's actually pretty close to the New Testament. You may have not been in the Minor Prophets for a while. There's a reason why they're called the White Pages, because your fingers haven't been in there very often. But that's going to change today, all right? So you want to find the book of Habakkuk? If you can't find it, uh, we're a real friendly place. Just ask your neighbor, and they might even know where it is. And there's always the table of contents. So you find the book of Habakkuk. The kids are making their way to kids' church. That goes all the way up through sixth grade. Now, when you look at uh, our planet... You look at the earth. Let me just ask you, are you just a little concerned about what is going on in our world? Now, from a satellite, or if you're an astronaut and you've had a little glimpse of the earth from a distance, it looks like a pretty wonderful place. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, look at that picture. Doesn't that look like, wow, everything could thrive. What could possibly be going on down there that would be something that we'd call wrong? It's beautiful. On the other hand, you get a little closer and you start walking this earth, this trod, this dusty soil, and you find out that there are a lot of issues that are leading to some pretty serious, grim outlook for life on this planet. I mean, look at the increased turmoil. Look at the rise of terrorism and how terrorism has literally changed how we function. There is mounting tragedies, unprecedented trauma, there's deepening trials, unparalleled tensions between nations. Look what's going on even in our own culture. There were, we're watching about as fast as we can snap our fingers a moral decline where we are literally, things that were once, once sacrosanct, like uh, how we define sexuality, um, marriage, institutions that we once felt were like, these are impregnable. These will always stand. They're being changed at an alarming rate. You look at a, like our own country, and we are quickly rejecting any view of morality that has a transcendent basis. In fact, we are living in a culture today that is quickly trying to define a new morality based upon human logic, reason, or oftentimes just whatever the entertainment culture is telling us. And it is happening at such a rapid pace. Look at uh, relationships like among a family. Even the definition of what a family might even be is, is up for grabs today. You look at civil relationships. You can look at marriage. You look at a country like America that has developed a radical concept of tolerance. And we're doing so in such a way that we're literally changing our definition of morality even as we speak. Doesn't it concern you? For instance, when you watch those kids making their way, see their glee and the excitement, for the most part, they are quite sheltered to the things that we're starting to talk about this morning. But what kind of world is your children going to inherit? Your grandchildren, are you concerned? Or have you just kind of turned a blind eye to the whole thing? Like, ah, this is all going to work out. And I really don't want to even think about that. I want to think about my role. I don't want to think about what might happen. What's, what is taking place? And not only our world, but how about our church? Just How about the church in general, in the world, or in America, or in Waco? 
We are very quickly taking an approach to Christianity that says you design your own Christianity. We've moved from a personal faith to a personalized faith where you can you can define Christianity however you want it. It can be whatever you want it. Traditional major doctrines that the church is held dear to. They're actually being jettisoned. And what happens is it's not like, oh, we we just totally deny the doctrine of the Trinity or the inspiration of Scripture. It's not happening that way. Actually, there's a lot of verbal affirmation when pressed on key doctrines of the faith. But in reality, there's very little practice to it. And so you actually give assent, verbal assent, like, yeah, I, I believe that. The church is supposed to believe that. I believe that. But practically, it has no bearing because we're all about an individual designer Christianity. And Christianity and being a Christian can be whatever you want it to be. And because we have developed this radical view of tolerance, what I believe about Christianity, if it's different than yours, I'd like, well, that's fine. You could do whatever you want. I'll do whatever I want. If I want to call myself a Christian, I, I can, even though I may not even understand what that means. In fact, there's a lot of people that can't articulate what the gospel really is. And you just start looking what's going on in our world, in our church. Let me just even give you this statistic. Since 1973, that decision, Roe versus Wade, since that decision was made, do you know how many children have been sacrificed? Anybody know? 50 million. Just let that sink in. 50 million. You look at poverty, you look at the AIDS epidemic, you look at racism. I mean, I'm talking, it, we're, when you start to take a look about what's going on on our planet, it starts to alarm you and you start to almost become unraveled. And one of the things that causes us to become unraveled is this question, where is God in a world like this? I mean, come on, God's sovereign, right? He's in control. He's God. We're not. We're, where is he? What's going on? How in the world can he tolerate a world like this? Does he even care? Has God become overwhelmed by the evil forces that seem to be thriving on this planet that he made? Is God really in control? How, if he is, how can he let these things happen? And how can I live in a world like this? If you're looking at what's going on in our world, you start asking questions like that. Let me tell you, you're not the first person to ask those kind of questions. In fact, there was a prophet by the name of Habakkuk 2,600 years ago that asked exactly the same questions. He wanted answers. How do you live in a world like this that is simply becoming unraveled? And it is fascinating when you come to the book of Habakkuk. You got three chapters because God gives an answer. It is a mind-breaking reply. This is God as you probably have never known him. But not only does he just cause your mind just to snap by how he is interfacing and interacting with the evil in the world, he actually tells us how you and I not just survive but literally thrive and a world gone awry. Now, when you come to the book of Habakkuk, he is really unique among the prophets. All, all the other prophets, they're kind of announcing and declaring what God is telling humanity, specifically Israel, but oftentimes even other countries. They're proclaimers of truth revealed to them, and that's their job. They're a prophet. 
What's unique about the book of Habakkuk is that Habakkuk doesn't really talk to people. He addresses God, and God actually gives him a reply. And it is a recording of what God has to say and Habakkuk's questions that you find. Now, Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zephaniah. Now, we don't know a lot about him. Perhaps he is, was so well known as a prophet that you just didn't need to say much. But we don't have a lot of information about him. Now, let me give you the setting here. Because you need to understand what's going on in the world to understand the questions that Habakkuk is asking. Habakkuk is living in a time of international crisis and national corruption. Okay? You're like, <laughs> well, that's not a little familiar there. Whoa. International crisis, national corruption. Let me tell you what's going on in the world stage. Since 9-11 BC, you have the world power of Assyria. Talk about a wicked nation, a wicked empire. They were powerful, they were warlike, and their pro- what they did is they'd go and they would conquer a country, any sort of territory, and when they conquered you, then they haul, uh, the people that were still alive, they'd haul them off and they'd transplant them. It was all part of a process of completely dominating the world, and that's how they did it. In fact, they even did it with Israel. Israel, by this time, is divided into two kingdoms. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Israel is so small, you can hardly even see it on the little map compared to the Assyrian Empire. In 722 BC, Assyria, this great dominating world power, comes in and it literally takes over the northern kingdom. They killed a bunch of people and they hauled the rest of them off. And then they transplanted some people from another part of their empire and they brought them in. It is the reason why the Jews in the south hated the Jews in the north because they had intermingled with these people that had been imported from another part of a conquered world. But then there was some trouble that is brewing. Now, Assyria tried to actually conquer Jerusalem, Judah. Judah is the southern part. It actually adopted the, uh, the small little tribe of Benjamin. And they actually, in 701 B.C., after conquering the northern tribe, they, uh, tribes, they tried to conquer Jerusalem, but by a miraculous feat and an act of God, they were unsuccessful in doing so. It was one of the major miracles of the Old Testament. So they, they were unable to conquer them. So what they did is they kind of treated them like a vassal territory, a vassal nation. You had to pay tribute. But to the south of Assyria, and you go on to this next slide, you see there was this rising empire called Babylon. Now Babylon, just, they, they also were ruthless, and they kept growing in strength to a place where they were starting now to challenge Assyria. So much so that Assyria kind of had to pull out of Judah and where Jerusalem is to devote all of their energies to Babylon, which kept beating them and, and was looking to actually become the next world power. And so when this happened, this kind of created a void in Israel. And you see Egypt. Now, Egypt wasn't quite as powerful as we remembered in some of the Old Testament uh, stories back like in Genesis, but it still was a world power. It quickly floods into Israel and actually takes it over because they're actually going to try to help the Assyrians because Babylon looks like they will be the next world power. And maybe the two of them could actually beat back Babylon. Well, that's what's going on on the world stage. Well, Babylon actually becomes successful. In fact, in 612 BC, they beat the Assyrians and they crush them in Nineveh. And then the uh, Egyptians, they're like, they're trying to put an end to this as well. But they were unsuccessful in doing that in 605 BC at the Battle of Carchemish. Babylon conquers Egypt and becomes the superpower, the dominating world empire. 
Now, let me tell you what's going on nationally. For Habakkuk, to bring you to his time, he lived really in the best of times and perhaps even the worst of times. You see, during Habakkuk's time, there was a king by the name of King Josiah. Most of the kings in Judah generally were pretty bad and wicked. Josiah was one of the few that was just absolutely awesome. He actually became king at age eight. He actually instituted great godly reforms. He realized that the country was completely astray from God. They actually, when he he gave an order to start rebuilding the temple and clean it up, they actually found a copy of the law. And it was so revolutionary, they actually found their own scriptures that God had given them. They had them read to him, and he like tore his clothes, and he's like, we're bringing about reform here. We are going back to God. And he led his country into great spiritual reformation. And that was all very wonderful. So from 640 B.C. to 609 B.C., you got the reforms of King Josiah. As go the leaders, so go the people. And it was awesome. God was being exalted. There was a spiritual revival in the land, and Habakkuk witnessed it. But when Egypt was trying to cut through Israel to go and fight off Babylon and support the Assyrians, Josiah's like, you know, Assyria's always been our enemy. I don't really want you running through our land. It's like, don't go through my backyard. You're going to have to go through me. And he literally tried to actually lead an army to attack Egypt, who was trying to cut from the south, cut through, cut north through Israel. And in doing so, he actually lost his life. Egypt ran him over. So that made a situation where his son, Jehoaz, actually then becomes the king in Israel. But guess how long his reign lasts? Three months. Because Egypt says, you know what? We're just going to take you over while we're at it. Three months later, they go, they depose his son, they put his other son, Jehoiakim, they change his name, and he becomes now the ruler in Israel. And Jehoiakim is an evil man. Just because you have a godly daddy is no guarantee that you're going to have godly sons. And there obviously was some serious breakdown that takes place because Jehoiakim was an evil man. And all the reforms that his dad brought on, he just pretty much wrecked and devastated the land. And people went spiritually corrupt very quickly. That is the world stage. And Habakkuk is living in the time of Jehoiakim, domination by Egypt, international crisis, and the country is just literally being torn apart. He's witnessing all sorts of wickedness and violence. And he's pleading with God, God, will you do something? Kind of like some of you are. You see what's going on in our entertainment society world. You see all the breakdowns in morality. You see the evil that is in our midst, and you're pleading with God, would you do something? That's where Habakkuk steps in. And so we find the questions of a concerned prophet when you open the pages of Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Habakkuk is a God's prophet, meaning he's a spokesperson, And it's what the prophets saw. You know how prophets are sometimes called seers? You ever heard that? Do you know why they're called seers? Because they actually either see a literal vision of what is going to happen, or they actually spiritually see a vision that God is showing them of what is about to take place. And so he says, this is what I saw. Now he says in verse 2, he starts giving the questions, questions that you're probably asking. How long... O Lord, literally uses God's personal name, Yahweh, will I call for help, and you will not hear. I cry out to you, violence. Literally, people being torn apart. And yet you do not save. 
Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do I have to look at all this? Iniquity has the idea of a deviation from a divine standard. The people are corrupt. Why do you make me see this? Why do you cause me to look on wickedness, complete violations of God's standards? Why do my eyes have to see this? He says also in verse 3, Yes, destruction and violence are before me, and strife exists and contentions arises. I mean, everywhere I look, it's breakdown. And then he says, verse 4, and he says, Therefore the law, God's law, it's ignored. And the word uh, ignored could literally be translated becomes numb. It's like paralyzed. It's powerless. Your word seemingly has no power on your people. Because look at them. They're vile, wicked, wicked, filled with iniquity. And, and then he says, look at verse 4. He also says, not only is your law ignored, he says, but justice is never upheld for the wicked surround the righteous and therefore justice comes out perverted. Let me just tell you about justice. It's a huge word. Justice has the idea that if that God's morals and ethics, his law, is actually adhered to by his people. His morality, his ethics are being exercised by his people, and God's people were to judge correctly and honestly. And now, oftentimes when we think about judgment, we just think about, hey, there's got to be a punishment. But a big part of judgment for Israel was actually restitution. Yeah, oftentimes there was punishment involved, but it was restitution. And another aspect of God's justice as to be practiced by his people is that they were to be concerned about the poor and the marginalized. And Habakkuk says, justice is never upheld. In fact, the wicked surround the righteous. They're persecuting them, and justice comes out perverted. And he's saying, God, why? Why is this happening? Why don't you do something about it? Well, those are his concerns. But you might want to put on your seatbelt. Because God gives his sovereign reply to these questions. And let me assure you, it's not what Habakkuk was thinking and i can tell you it's not what you're thinking god then speaks and he says verse five look among the nations observe be astonished and wonder man back is like whoa whoa god's telling i'm going to do something that's going to blow your mind he says because i am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told Stop right there. If you're Habakkuk, you're like, whoa, God says he's going to do something absolutely mind-breaking. He might be thinking that God's going to send Messiah. Maybe now he's going to send Messiah. Maybe there's going to be the revival that we've been praying for. Maybe now it's going to happen. Things are going to, we're going to experience the best days yet. But then look what God says. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Whoa. If you're Habakkuk, you literally probably fall down. The Chaldeans were synonymous with Babylon. The Chaldeans were a, a tribe in Babylon in the south. They were vicious, powerful. They became so successful that they pretty much dominated Babylon to the point where to refer to a Chaldean or a Babylon, they were synonymous terms. One meant the other. God says, you think I'm not doing anything and that I don't care. I'm not involved. I'm just kind of up in the sky. I set the world in motion and I'm sitting back and watching it happen. No. I'm critically involved. In fact, 
I am even as I speak addressing the issue. You don't see what's going on, but let me assure you, I, have, I am raising up the Chaldeans, and he is going to spare no graphic description of what God is about to do. Habakkuk's position is kind of like a captain with his, his unit, and they're taking on an enemy that is just beating them to a pulp. And they're trying to hold their positions, but they got high casualties. They're running out of ammo, and they're trying to hold the hill, but the enemy is just coming up, man, and they're, they're losing. The captain sends out a word and says, I desperately need help. Please rescue me. Send reinforcements. What the captain doesn't know until he gets his binoculars out and he starts looking over the scenery is that the general is fully aware of the situation. And he has sent not just a unit, but he has sent an entire corps to come around the other side and to literally destroy the enemy. All Habakkuk needs to do is to see the general strategy and to look up and see there's a much bigger picture of what God is about to do. And so God says, listen, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This, they were afraid of them. Literally, these they were vicious, difficult, terrible people. And God says, let me tell you what they're like. They are, verse 6, fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places that are not theirs. Verse 7, they are dreaded and feared with real good reason. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. They could care less about people. They could care less about God, Yahweh. They've got their own rules and their own laws. They are a God unto themselves. And he says their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Uh, He's talking about animals that literally rip their prey apart. Wolves travel and pack and they fight over the meat once they've made their kill. That's what they're like. Their horsemen came galloping. Their horsemen came from afar and they fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. And Babylon was known for their cavalry. And what would happen is they pretty much used a process of just literally shocking their enemies. They'd send their cavalry in with their spears and they'd literally just shock and overwhelm the, their enemy. And then followed up with that was their infantry. And Nebuchadnezzar was their leader, and he was a military, brilliant strategist. That is how they function. And he says, verse 9, All of them come for violence, and their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They have little regard whatsoever for people. They could care, they're like sand to them. Could care less. They, notice verse 10. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. He's just kind of talking about just how strong they are. And when they're talking about these kings and mocking at kings, one of the things that Babylon did is normally kings were to be feared. Once they captured a city or or some sort of nation that we might refer to, they would take their leaders and they would mock them and ridicule them. In fact, when Babylon actually does come and does exactly what God says is about to happen, they actually made three different times where they surged into Judah and totally took them over. The third time, in 586 B.C., there was a king by the name of Zedekiah. And what they did once they finally caught Jerusalem and Zedekiah was holding out, they took Zedekiah and his family, and they took his boys 
And they literally, to use the biblical word, they slaughtered him in front of Zedekiah. They held his head and you watch. And as soon as they got done slaughtering his kids, then they gouged out his eyes. So that the last thing he ever saw was his kids being killed. They put him in shackles and he hauled him off to Babylon. That is how you rule in Babylon. They would they laugh at every fortress. They create mounds of dirt and they would actually use battering rams to knock down walls or they would actually dig underneath the walls. They, they heap up rubble, like it says in verse 10, to capture it. And then they will sweep through it like wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Now, let me tell you some of the incentives for the soldiers if you're Babylon. You didn't get paid if you were in the army like, okay, just here's your day's wage. It didn't work that way. The only way you got paid as a soldier is by whatever you captured. What, let's say they took over a city. All the loot, all the gold, silver, that would be collected, and you got paid out of that. No loot, no win, no pay. And so these guys, they're going to give it everything they got. They didn't march all the way from Babylon, a long way from home, to just kind of, well, we'll try a little skirmish here and see how we do. It was win at all costs for them. And yet God says, they're going to be held guilty. Verse 11, they whose strength is their God. And the Babylon's God was Marduk, or oftentimes referred to as Bill, the storm god. And the pantheon of Mesopotamia gods, he is the supreme ruler. And so they would literally worship this god. And they would even, with their swords and their spears, they would even worship their implements of war and even burning incense to them. And Yod says, you know what? I'm raising them up, but you don't want to miss verse 11. They are going to be held guilty. Now, you're like, whoa, whoa. What's going on here? Let me help you relate. How many of you were an adult in 1970? Come on, all right, there you go. You don't, I'm not, you're not old or anything like that. You're just mature, all right? You're getting better, okay? But just try to imagine what it was like to be an adult in 1970. You came out of the period of the 1960s. You got rampant drug use. You got sexual immorality with the liberation, sexual liberation movement. You got a war going on in Vietnam, and there's a heavily divided country. You've got, you've got violence in the streets, violence in the schools, violence on college campuses. You've got racism running rampant. There is hatred, and it is prevalent. And just imagine if you were a Christian back then, and you're praying, God, would you do something? Would you resolve these issues? Would you fix it and bring revival in our land? And God reveals, you know what? I'm going to do something about it. Great. A great awakening in America. God's like, not exactly. You know the Soviet Union? They're coming in. I'm going to let them destroy America. Like, whoa, wait a second. That would be worse than what we got. Maybe it's not so bad here. Or let's just take it into modern times. Today. We've got our rampant immorality. We've got, we're redefining sexuality. We are living in a culture that calls wrong, right, and right, wrong. And it gets in our face every single day. We're living in a world of utter confusion. God is mocked on the radios. He's mocked in the newspapers. He's mocked in classrooms. He is ridiculed. There's a good part of the country that thinks that you're an idiot for being in church this morning. When you could be sleeping in, what do you mean worshiping a God you can't see? And it's as if, like, we're praying for revival and God changes. And God says, you know what? I'm going to. You know China? They're your greatest creditor. They own you already. They decided they're going to collect on their debt today and they move in and they literally take you over. That would be like the equivalent of what God is telling Habakkuk. 
And he says, though, but they're going to be held guilty. Their, their pride and their arrogance is going to lead to their downfall. And God says, I'm going to judge them. Now, can we say that God is going to bring a foreign power like China or, or let's say North Korea and literally take over, destroy us, probably nuke us and then take us over? Can we say with certainty that God is going to do that in America? No, we can't. You know why we can't say with certainty? Because one, it is not revealed in God's word. And second of all, America is not Israel. But let me tell you, God is going to judge sin. Now, good, could God bring a country to conquer us? He could. But we have no biblical basis of saying that. Or you look at like the tragedies of like Sandy Hook Elementary or Columbine or what takes place in Paducah, Kentucky. And people ask, well, is that God's judgment upon our country? Is that why that's going on? And these questions are being asked. And there are some folks that are saying, absolutely it is. But again, it's, that is not real, revealed in God's word. God didn't say, I'm going to do this specific incident. But God does say, I am going to judge sin. And he will. All wrong, anything that is any departure from him and his holiness is going to be judged. And so what, what is going to happen is God, yes, is going to judge sin. It is why you and I need to trust in Christ the Savior. Because God poured out his wrath upon his son. If you will plead for mercy and cling to Christ, you can have redemption and not face his wrath. But if you go on your own program, you will face God's justice. God is going to judge sin. Well, if you're Habakkuk, you're going, whoa, this problem, man, isn't the medicine worse than the disease? I mean, come on. I don't know if we really want Babylon taking us over. Now, divine sovereignty does not annul human responsibility. God is going to judge sin. And so Habakkuk is going to go, how in the world do I live? And you might be asking that question. How do I live in a world like this? I'd just like, as we finish this up, to highlight what God says. And friends, what I'm about to tell you, if you want to live and live well in the midst of a world gone awry, you must follow and do as Habakkuk did. If you don't, it is going to be a tumultuous struggle. You take it to your logical extreme, and you might find yourself hard to function and face reality. But look and see how do you live in the midst of the pain in this world and even the pain in your own heart of things that are going on in your life, physical breakdown, financial issues, relational breakdown, illness. How do we live? The answers are found here in the book of Habakkuk. First of all, you need to learn to take your troubles to God. You and I, we need to learn to take our troubles to God. Prior to knowing Christ as Lord and Savior, you always just tried to work it out on your own. And that is your modus operandi. That is your default setting to try to do life on your own. We need to learn to talk to God, just like Habakkuk does. And you're like, well, man, won't God be upset if I actually bring these big concerns to him? No. You think he's overwhelmed by them? Absolutely not. In fact, he's probably bothered that you don't bring your troubles to him. And so like Habakkuk, we approach him with our problems. And so that's exactly what Habakkuk does. Verse 12, are you not 
from everlasting the Lord, my God, my Holy One. You talk to God about your issues. And notice how he refers to my God, my Lord. It is a personal relationship with God. And the more we develop the patterns of learning to talk to God about the issues in our life, that is how we start to experience his life and his strength in the midst of our great problems, internationally, locally, personally. But there's another aspect. You want to do well? And that is look to God's character and promise. Look to God's character and his promises. I want you to see what Habakkuk does. Look at verse 12. He's talking to God and he says, Are you not from everlasting? He reminds himself, God, you're an eternal God. You were here before Babylon. You're going to be here after Babylon. You're absolutely eternal. Oh, Lord, my God, my holy one. He calls God holy. You're absolutely separate. And he says, we will not die. You, oh, Lord, have appointed them to judge. You, God, you've appointed the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to come in here and to judge us. And you, O rock, have established them to correct. What he's doing here is he's pointing out, God, you're sovereign. And friends, that's what we need to remember. He's in control, even when we don't like what he's doing. God, when we talk about him being sovereign, he has the right to govern as he chooses. And that doesn't, he's not imposed upon any sort of limitation. There's no limitations imposed upon him. No matter what human choices are made, God is in control. And that's what Habakkuk is saying. You've done this. You appointed them judge. You're the rock. You are faithful. You've established them to correct. And notice also what he says in verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. He calls God, you're pure. You're absolutely holy. You're completely set apart from anything that would defile. Do you know why he's doing this? Why he prays this way? Because this is how our soul is strengthened. When we see the greatness, the grandeur, and the loveliness of God. It is why you and I have to have strong theology. Weak theology leads to weak lives. But when you see God for who he is, and his strength, and his character, it is this deep-rooted theology that actually gives you strength for the trials and the situations that we're facing. And so he says, not only is he remembering God's character, but did you see that in verse 12? You might have missed it right in the middle there. He says, we will not die. How in the world did Habakkuk know that? Babylon was pretty good at killing people. How did, how did Habakkuk know they weren't going to be exterminated? I'll tell you why. Because God has made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and another promise to David. God said, my seed will live forever through you. You will always have a people And he promised David in the Davidic covenant, you will always have a son to reign. And by the way, that is true today. Jesus is a descendant of David. He is called the king of David. And the Jewish people are still here. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. When you and I are facing the difficulties that are unraveling us, you and I must focus on God's character, who he really is as revealed in his word, and his promises what he has said to be true. Well, Habakkuk goes, let me just rehearse to you just how evil these people are. Your eyes are too pure to prove evil. You see that in verse 13? And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? What he's saying is, God, I've got this moral dilemma. How is it 
that you can use people more wicked than we are to accomplish your purposes. Why have you made, verse 14, men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? And then he says, and the Chaldeans, verse 15, they bring all of them up with a hook. And they would. They'd sometimes literally put hooks through people's heads and their noses and their mouths and their jaws. How could, you, how could we use these people? And they drag them away with all their net and gather them together in their fishing net, and therefore they rejoice and are glad. And that's exactly what they would do. They, would, they actually have pictures in Mesopotamia on these reliefs, and Babylon had pictures of their people in, that they captured, and they were being drug in nets. And Habakkuk knows this, and that's why he's referencing this. And he says, And to make matters worse, they worship their implements of war, verse 16. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net, Come on. And they burn incense to their fishing net. And because through these things, they catch, the catch is large and their food is plentiful. And verse 17, will they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without sparing? Are they going to just keep doing this? Well, that's what Habakkuk is raising. He's saying, how in the world am I supposed to live? Well, let me just tell you. First of all, you've got to be looking to take your trouble to God. Second, you must Learn to focus and look upon the promises and the character of God. And third, God actually tells him. And this is what we're going to spend next week looking on because this, this particular section in chapter 2 is foundational for life, life with God. But look what happens here. Chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk has asked God his questions. And he says, you know what, I'm going to stand on my guard post. And I'm going to station myself on the rampart and I'm going to keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I'm, I may reply when I'm approved. When I have to, I'm going to watch and see what God's going to do because I know that one day I'm going to have to tell the people of, of Judah, God's people, what's going to happen. I need to know from him how I'm supposed to handle it when they're going to get ready to kill me. I need to know how I'm supposed to reply. And God speaks. And just to whet your appetite and to give you the answer, the answer to life. It's Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. God says in verse 2, I want, I'm, I'm answering you. I want you to write this down. Make sure every single person knows this. Verse 4, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. If you're proud, you're trusting in anyone or anything but me. Your soul is not right. But the righteous will live by his faith. That's it. Did you want to live? You and I live by faith in God and his revealed word. Apart from that, it is going to be a tumultuous life. And so that is the answer. Faith is taking God at his word. You live by trusting in me. That is the only way through. Your problems that you're facing, if you try to do them in your own strength, it's not going to work. You are going to break down. It is only in the strength of the Lord. You see, we really live when we live by faith. Now, faith isn't some sort of fatalistic resignation, but it is a resolution to trust in him who is Lord, even when you do not understand his ways. And friends, it's like that sometimes. God, why is this happening? But yet I'm going to trust you, even though I don't fully understand your ways. And what happens is you will find a sincere faith 
learns to resolve the mysteries of life by grasping the mystery of God. So remember his character. Remember who he is. And when you face that which you cannot understand, always fall back to what you do know, what you do know to be true about God. It's kind of like this. On one side of the tapestry, it looks like all knots and just a bunch of garbled string. That's what life on this planet looks like sometimes, doesn't it? Maybe a lot of times. But on the other side, God is weaving an amazing tapestry that speaks of his glory, that points to his sovereignty, and that is drawing all people to Christ because he is the preeminent one. And friends, we really live when we put our faith in God as he is, as he's revealed himself. So did you want life in the midst of turmoil? It's found by taking our troubles to God, looking and trusting in his promises and his character, and is living by faith in him. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of scripture. I know, Lord, that um, Habakkuk is oftentimes untouched. And perhaps that's why there's oftentimes deficiencies in our own thinking. Because we need to wrestle and grapple with the great theology of this book. And Father, I thank you for your amazing love for us in Christ. I thank you for the promises that you will never leave us nor forsake us. I thank you that you are the one who has given us life in your son and you have called us to faith, to live by faith daily, not just as an act, but as a way of life. And Lord, if there is someone here today who has never trusted your son and they finally understand that they're sinners in absolute need of a savior because they will face judgment for their sin, would they pray with me and say, Lord, I turn from my sin and I trust Christ, the Son of God. I thank you that he paid for my sins and that he gives life, life to me, spiritual life, genuine life. And Lord, help all of us to live by faith that will not be demoralized and defeated by the issues of this world or succumb to the perils of pride. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.